Shalom, and thank you for listening to the weekly teaching from Nachamu Ami. It's our honor that you've chosen to participate virtually, and we hope that this lesson will be an inspiration in your daily walk. Don't miss a single teaching. Be sure to download the Nachamu Ami app by visiting our website at www.makeandmessianic.com and clicking the Download the App button in the top left corner. Enjoy the message. This is, uh, you know, we, we have audio listeners. We have people around the world, actually, who listen to, to sermons or teachings that happen through Nechamu Ami. And usually, <coughs> those numbers are roughly, we have about, I don't know, 180 or 200 off-site people who listen to the sermons, okay? Some of you have come here because of hearing those sermons, but last week we started a series called A Better Covenant, Yeshua and the Sacrificial System, and the first week was called Sin and Sacrifice. As of this morning, we had 475 listens on the SoundCloud account for this series. Do you know what that tells me? Or do you know, you know why that matters? Be- because of course, I want to be famous, and the more people who listen, the better my, bigger my paycheck will be, Right? What it tells me is that it matters. It matters, and more importantly, it matters to people because this is a confusing area to try to understand. Because there is so much that surrounds the idea of sacrifice for us as Messianic believers and, and, and the Christian understanding, and, and there's, there's confusion in the world And so what matters is, and I remind you of the underlying purpose for why we're actually doing this, um, the concept that we are reminded of in the book of Peter, 1 Peter, that says, paraphrasing it, always be ready to explain to someone why you have the hope you do in Messiah Yeshua. And at the end of all of this, your hope your future, your expectation, your exaltation of Messiah Yeshua will be increased significantly, I believe. Even reading the, the, the Torah portions and reading the, the, um, the section this morning on what we read from the Gospels, everything changes when you understand this. That's a pretty big promise, but I'm not kidding you. It really does. When you understand why the Torah says what it says and why the book of Hebrews says what it says and how they can be seemingly so contradictory to one another, but yet they come together to paint the perfect story of how God's word all ties perfectly together. So that is our reason and that's why people are listening and God willing, more people will listen because We are not out to prove anyone wrong. We are not out to to be haughty or to be cocky. We are out to educate in the desire to draw people to God. That's what we're doing here. So last week, our series began with the basic premise that sin is not what's at the center of the sacrificial system. Do you remember this? We talked about a sacrifice being brought and on one traditional 
I just say Christian understanding that those sacrifices pacified a bloodthirsty God who he didn't really care. As long as something bled and died, he was happy. And we talked about how wrong that was. And we talked about what sacrifices really are and the word karav, which means to draw near. From where we draw the word korban, which doesn't really mean sacrifice, it means uh, uh, to bring, to draw near by bringing a sacrifice. We talked about a covering, a kafar. We talked about atonement, and we looked at that word, but we didn't really look at that word. Because everyone has in their mind a definition of atonement, and we're going to clarify it. And we're also particularly going to clarify today the word sin. Because So much of what you are reading in the book of Leviticus, in the book of Hebrews, and other places, when we do not understand sin as God defines it, we have a problem. So my question to you to begin with is, do sacrifices take away sins? No is the answer I'm getting. That's a good answer. And we, we, we have ourselves a challenge. By the reckoning of the book of Hebrews, we know it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin, right? There should be no confusion about the fact that the bulls and goats never took away sins. If someone read, reads the Hebrew, so the, or reads the book of Hebrews, a follow-up that says every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can, how often can they take away sins? Never, it says. This seems cut and dry to the answer we're looking for, right? But there's a problem. And it's found in the Torah. Does the Torah change? Does the Torah pass away? Does Yeshua come to abrogate, end, change the Torah? Well, here's what the Torah says in 16, describing the book, uh, describing the day of atonement. We call it Yom Kippur. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from how many of your sins? How often do bulls and goats take away sins? What's sacrificed on Yom Kippur? We've got a problem. Do we not? We have a problem. Or do we? If we understand sin in its proper context, we do not have a problem. But we need to understand this before we can go forward. And these first few weeks, actually, are all about understanding the foundation of the Torah before we can move into the apostolic scriptures. Because guess what? That's how God designed it. It's all one big book and it works together, right? So it seems, according to Christian reckoning, we have this serious dilemma where the Torah says yes, Hebrew says no. They are at odds with one another. Can there be contradictions like this on something so major in the Bible? Can that happen? It shouldn't, 
and it doesn't in this case. But we must go here. What is sin? Sin is drawn from the idea of missing the mark. That's the Hebrew. Everyone's probably heard this, talking about an arrow, an archery term, and we're shooting toward the target, and we miss the target, and so that's sin. What is sin? Sin is separation from God. Sin is something that separates us from God. It places between us and God a distance. God is perfect. We are not. God is not sinful. We are. Why? Because we consistently find ourselves in places separated from God. Do we agree with that? Is that, is that logical and reasonable as a, as a descriptor for sin? Something that separates and creates distance. Now, who created the sacrificial system? God, he wrote it down. In case you were confused by that, he wrote it down and he gave it to Moses. And Moses gave it to Israel. Why did he do that? If the sacrifices didn't take away sins, why did he take so much time to do this? And then even more confusing, why would he say they do? Whatever they did, and we'll figure it out right now, it was something God liked. And I would tell you, still likes. You with me on that? Not everyone is, because a large percentage of the world would disagree with the still likes part. But I'll make some sense of it. Stick with me. Now, here's how I want to I diverge from the biblical text just a bit. This is a book that's called Impurity and Sin in Ancient Judaism. It is a, written by a PhD named Jonathan Clowens, who is him and a number of other scholars who write extensively on this topic of impurity and sin. And I'm going to use the term impurity to describe sin as well. Distance from God, but impurity applies here as well. Why? Because sin pollutes. When you are polluted, are you pure? You're impure. God is perfectly pure. We are not. There is a vital distinction in understanding sin that we must do kind of outside the box. And here's why it's outside the box. Because you do not find this distinction clearly drawn in the biblical text. There's not something that says we have ritual impurity and we have moral impurity. And it's a very, very fine line that we have to draw here because there, it's not impossible that there can be some crossover between and I'll tell you what that looks like as well. But for right now, what I want you to do is give me the freedom, the liberty to expand on these two simple concepts. And that's what they are. They're not Hebrew words. They're not in the text. They're not those things. They are conceptual ideas that you must have to understand this. Ritual impurity, moral impurity. Are you with me? Say it. Perfect. 
And are they the same? They're not, but how do we, how do we, how do we navigate this? Well, I want to I just jump very quickly back to what we talked about ne- last week and the Christian concept of the sacrifices and sin. Sacrifices were a, a, a repair of something broken. In other words, you sinned, you brought a sacrifice, and God fixed you. Sins were brought for transgression. Okay, that's, that's the general idea in Christian theology. Sacrifices were brought as a response to transgression. And there is some, some degree of truth to that based on what we talked about with the sacrifices last week, the, the sin offering, the guilt offering, those types of things. But stick with me. So in that process, our guilt is atoned for, Right? We receive atonement, and it would seem that that's what this is saying. Now, what is the idea of Christian atonement? The idea is the breakdown of the word into at-one-ment, at-one-ment, meaning what? I was distanced from God by my impure behavior, by my sin, my impurity. Now I am back with him. I am atoned. I am together. We are one. Okay? But it was a guilty thing. It was, I, I, I murdered someone. I brought a bull. I cheated on someone. I brought a lamb. And now God fixed it. What was our problem that we uncovered last week? Anyone remember? I'll ask you in a yes or no form and make it easy for you. Is there a sacrifice that may be brought for intentional sin? The answer is no. And we talked about why the system would be an absolute and total failure if that were the case. If the Torah told me, Damien, you may go and have 50 girlfriends and do whatever you want with them, I do not care. But it wouldn't matter. It wouldn't matter what she thinks because all I need to do is bring a bull. If I go rob a bank and kill a couple of security guards and a police officer on the way out, as long as I can bring a goat, it's fine. The license that that gives is ridiculous. We're tracking, right? There is no intentional sin that can be forgiven by sacrifice. I want you to say it. No intentional sin that can be forgiven by sacrifice. And so, there's this wrong understanding in Christian theology that sacrifice undoes sin. Okay? Are we we together? That's what's wrong. But we have this difficulty again. Because in our Torah portion this week, Tazria, childbirth, we read in in Vayikra in Leviticus 12, when the days of her purifying are completed, who's her? The new mom. Disgusting, despicable sinner. 
How many moms in here? Raise your hand right now. Disgusting. <laughs> Filthy sinners. How do I know it? Because the Torah says it. You better bring a sin offering for the nasty thing you did. Having a baby. What's the matter with you? She shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent a meeting a lamb a year old for a burnt offering. That's a big one. The olah, the elevation offering. And she's going to bring a sin offering for, and she's going to offer it before the Lord. And what's it going to do for her? Why? Seriously, joking aside, why in the world does a mom need to bring a sin offering to God? Does everyone understand already the reason why? Is everyone clear on all this? Well, for the people... Anybody listening to this, my whole congregation already knows the answer, so this is just for you. (laughs) Christian theology, sin, sacrifice undoes sin. It's It's a destructive mechanism, sacrifice. Something is destroyed and killed and covers over your sin. Judaism. The Torah, this particular situation, and every other one you are going to find are a productive, productive venture. And this is what I mean. We, we have a serious problem. Do you know what that problem is? You don't. You couldn't possibly know what I'm getting ready to say. Do you know what one of our biggest problems is? We have no concept of interacting in holy space with God. Do you get it? Well, I have a synagogue, I go to church, I have my prayer closet, God is there. You don't, you don't get it. You don't get what I'm saying. There was a place called the temple. And in the temple, God promised his people and the whole world that his what would dwell there? His presence, God's presence would dwell in this holy space. We don't know what, uh, how dare you, Damien? I have the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit dwells within me and I am the temple and there's holy space all around. Not that either. We're not there yet, by the way, but we will, not today. We'll get there. But I'm talking about an entire national, national, everybody can go. It's not about how holy you are or how much of the Holy Spirit you have or anything. God's presence was there. And you could go into that sacred space, but we do not have that luxury. And the church fathers, I mean, the temple was destroyed in 70. The church fathers who crafted the the theology for Christianity 
did not have a concept of what that meant, what that looked like, what that process was. They didn't get it. And so we miss something huge about that concept. The fear and awe of God that the temple inspired was amazing, awe-inspiring, awesome, desirable. Can you imagine it? Put yourself there. Kids, we're going to Jerusalem. We're bringing a lamb. We're bringing a thanksgiving offering. We're going to, to sacrifice there, and we're going to share this meal together with who? Hashem, the presence of God. If you want to go and pray somewhere, why? What better place than to go into the holy temple where God's presence dwelt? You want to talk about having a direct line. It was an incredible and awesome opportunity and part of Jewish life to be able to go to the temple. But I will say this. By God's design, his presence was there and we could enjoy it. But there is a proper way to approach God's holiness. There is a proper way to enter into holy space. And if you don't believe me, read the Bible. Last week we read about who? Nadab and Abihu, Nadav and Abihu, what did they do? They entered holy space without the proper precaution. Talk to me about the holy, the high priest before Yom Kippur, who's sequestered away and is kept awake the entire night before so that he does not have any problems. And the, 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 uh, the guys who keep him awake, if he falls asleep, did they come up and tap on him? No, they do this. Why? Because if they touch him and render him impure, what happens? Dead. Talk to me about Uzzah, who didn't believe necessarily that there's a need for rules and regulations for how we approach God. Simply, the ark began to fall and he touched it. And what happened? Dead. These are dead guys who confirm for you that there is a proper way to approach God. And, get this, listen to this, hear me clearly, you've already arrived here on your own, but I'm going to tell you anyway. If you do not follow that protocol, you are a, who? A sinner. Why? Why? Because God said, don't do it. We sin when we do the things that God said, don't do. And these things create a distance between us. Okay? But that doesn't, that, that really still, that does not help me here with my, with my new mother. It doesn't help me with her. Well, God created a number of things that we're not going to go into 
this part of the, the, the book of Leviticus and approaching God, why blood and, and nocturnal emissions, seminal emissions, why like leprosy and death and childbirth, why those things separate us from God? There's a whole reason about why we can't enter into God's presence with those things. But it doesn't concern us right here. The bottom line is, you can't do it. And it renders you, when you encounter one of those situations, what does it render you? Ritually impure, to borrow our terminology. Ritually impure. I cannot approach the holy God in this state. If I do approach God in this holy state, I am a sinner, but I've added a layer to something. I've added a layer to my sin, and I'll come back to sin and purity. Bear with me. Stay with me. I am now a rebellious sinner. God created the system for me to be reconciled that I might go back into his presence, into the holy space, into the temple where I want to be. And if I purposely tread in there and say, I'm not doing it, God, I am a morally impure person on top of my ritual impurity. But you want to know something interesting? A morally impure, ritually pure person could go into holy space. That's a, that's a strange consideration, isn't it? But there is a serious and significant distinction that is not exactly drawn, as I told you, ritual and, and, and uh, moral purity, impurity. But look right here. This top word, tame, I've, I've translated it for you, unclean. It is describing in the Torah both instances of being unclean. Again, using my own words, you can be tame and be ritually impure. You can be tame and be morally impure. That word uses, is, use, describes both of those aspects of our separation from God. Are you with me? The next two words, guess what they don't do? They never are used to describe ritual impurities. Only abomination, pollute the land, Destroy the land. These words, chanef, toeva, these words do not intersect with ritual impurity. And I know it's getting kind of technical, and it's not that far away from being done. Stay with me. This is so vitally important. Because when we read in Hebrews this scripture, 
For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh. What is the flesh in Christian theology? How does Paul, why is he always talking about the flesh? What is it? It's our sinful, nasty, abominable, polluting nature that wants to kill people and have sex with everyone. That's not what that is. That is not what that is. The purification of the flesh is this. It is this. Why is our, why is our baby mama a sinner? Because her flesh is impure. Naturally, she is ritually impure, but she's bringing a sin offering, Damien. God, something else is wrong. No, it's not. She is ritually impure in her flesh, and God has created this way of her being able to get back into the system and be a part of the holy worship of God in the temple. When does she become a sinner? I've told you, when does she become a sinner? When she refuses to do that and interacts in the temple with things that she should not be interacting with because that is holy space. Those are God's holy things. And you cannot do that ritually impure. What about atonement, Damien? Leviticus 16.30, it says your sins, your sins will be removed and atonement will be made for you. What kind of atonement? What happens on Yom Kippur? The high priest goes in and he purifies the altar and the temple and the holy place. And yeah, he puts a, he puts a sacrifice in for the people as well. Why? What's happening here? What's happening here? Is every sinner and murderer and rapist in the crowd now totally forgiven because of the bull and goat? Hebrew says, no. But what did happen? The sanctuary was purified. That the people could come. It was pure. And God set it up that way. You don't like it? It doesn't have anything to do with their moral impurity. Now, these quick and easy distinctions in ritual and moral impurity. I've made this abundantly clear. I'll say it one more time. Intentional sins are not forgiven by sacrifices. Lust, immorality, murder, idolatry. These are moral issues. Ritual issues, which are obviously easy to distinguish, they should be anyway. One, number one, they're unavoidable. Number two, they're not permanent. There's always a way in the Torah to remove one of them. That's why sin offerings are better referred to as purification offerings. And lastly, 
They are natural. Here's the thing. If you follow commandment number one in the Bible, what is it? First mitzvah, what is it? Be fruitful and multiply. If you follow that one, guess what happens? You're going to interact with just about every single form of ritual impurity that you can. Birth, death, blood, seminal emission, every, like, you can't get away from it, right? But those things, they're natural. It's like Kelly, when, when Annabelle was born, I, I couldn't even look at her. She was so filthy. I was just such a nasty sinner. That's ridiculous. But if you don't make these distinctions and understand what is being talked about in the Torah and in the book of Hebrews, guess where you end up? You end up with Christian theology that completely and totally misses the boat. And as I said, this is the atonement that happens on Yom Kippur. Do you know why it says before the Lord, you shall be clean before the Lord in all your sins? Do you know why it says that? Because that is a direct reference to the holy space of God, his sanctuary. You will be able to come before the Lord in this place because a cleansing and an at-one-ment has taken place here. I'm not going back there. We already know that making atonement for her, my purification offering. That's what my new mom has done. She is back in. And here's what happens to her if she doesn't do that. You can read this on your own, not now. Leviticus 14, if they unintentionally sin, note the word, note the word, unintentionally in any holy things, he's going to bring another sacrifice. And what is it? It's the chatat offering or the asham, the guilt offering. If he does that, there's a way that you can be forgiven. Forgiven for what? Your unintentional sin has created a division and separation between you and God. Now here's what I like. Here's what I like. God desires to be near us. He desires for us to be near to him. We cannot do that in his holy space without this system in place. God likes the sacrifices. What they produced, we can read about this in the Tamid offerings, the the eternal offerings, the one, the sheep, the lamb that was sacrificed in the morning, the lamb sacrificed in the evening. And God says, my presence will be with you when you offer these things. He says in Leviticus 1, and this is such a beautiful piece of literature here, uh, such a beautiful piece of text. I just, I'm so inspired when I read it. Cut into pieces, head and its fat, and the priest shall arrange them on the wood, but the entrails and the legs he shall wash. Isn't that moving? I mean, it just, it moves the soul. 
This is why people discount what's happening here because they say, that's disgusting. God's not into that. That wouldn't matter. And you miss the last part that matters so much because here is what a pleasing aroma is to God in the sacrifice. Let's take our pregnant mom. She's been away. If she had a son, she's been away from God's holy presence for how many days? 40 days. If she had a daughter, she's away for 80 days. That's another message. We're not going there today. And she brings this sacrifice, and you'll notice that it says, after the time of her purification, now she brought the sacrifice. And what happens? She, it goes up. There's an olah, there's a sin offering. The smoke rises to God, and he smells it, and what does he think? Barbecue, yes, I love roasted bull. What is an aroma? An aroma is a foretaste of something. When I smell a chocolate pie baking or I smell a kosher T-bone steak on the grill, I don't go, oh, mm, I'm just going to stay here. I'm just going to enjoy this all day. Ah, ah, smell that. An aroma is a foretaste of the better thing that's behind it. If I smell a steak anywhere near my home, I'm going to... I'm going to find it and I'm going to eat it because the smell is drawing me, it's saying, it's a, it's, a, it's a foretaste. Why does God appreciate the sacrifice as a pleasing aroma? Because he's saying to himself, that's the smell of reuniting with my child. That's the foretaste. She's been away, but now she's been obedient She's brought the sacrifice and we are reconnected. That pleasing aroma says to God, she's back or he's back or they're back or whoever. That is productive, productive, not destructive. A taste of what is coming. Damien, you've done, uh, you know, you've really made the sacrifices look good and, and, and uh, I, I get it, but there are some major problems. When I read Hebrews, the Levitical priesthood goes away. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins. Here's this sin word again. We've made a very clear distinction today between sin, sin as we read it. And when you read a sin offering, you must keep what I told you in perspective. And then we read in Hebrews 8, that the Torah has gone away with as well. A new covenant he's made, the first obsolete. 
And then the sacrifices, of course, Damien, no matter how much you may love them and want to tell me they smell good and they're all these great things, they're gone too. Gifts and sacrifices offered. They can't perfect what? The conscience of the worshiper. Key term. We'll be back. But deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. And what is again the time of Reformation? It's when Jesus came and he did away with all this. And then, Damien, I'm going to turn you to the book of 1 Samuel, a great prophet who says, has the Lord a great delight in burnt offering and sacrifices as much as he does in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. And I'll take you over, Damien, to another book by Hosea. I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. And I'll take you to Isaiah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? I've had enough of burnt offerings and rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. And I'll take you to Amos and Damien and you'll see, you offer me these things, I won't accept them. God hates the sacrificial system you would have to draw from this conclusion. But it all depends on how you understand and reconcile and define sin and what in the world is God talking about through the prophets? Why does it seem that sacrifice is not a pleasing aroma, but instead a foul stench in the nostrils of God next week? Shabbat Shalom. We hope you enjoyed the weekly teaching. We'd love to hear from you with a comment, a prayer request, or questions you might have. We believe the mission and message of Messianic Judaism is something the world needs now. If you enjoy these teachings, would you consider financially supporting the work of Nachamu Ami by visiting our website at www.makinmessianic.com and clicking the Give Online button in the upper right corner. Thank you again for listening.